Uh, I'm a little concerned. I'm going to warn you right now. I'm a little concerned about length. So uh, just, just pray that I, that I edit in my heart and mind in a way that just gets to what God wants to say. It's a fairly complex thing that I think I've made fairly simple. But, you know, I'm praying, okay? So with that in mind, I want to say last week, what we looked at was when you are so consumed with the things that are right around you, the noise, the busyness, the commotion, the distraction, the, 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 the divisions and all of this, when you're so consumed with all of that, there is a problem. And the way that you have to get out of the problem is you have to lift your eyes from what's right in front of you. And we use a skiing metaphor. And you have to start looking down the slope to see where the slope is going. Because at some point in time, a slope is going to go a certain direction. And you have to see that it's going that direction. Else, you have your attention on this as you're moving towards what's coming. And as you do that, you fail to discern its turn and you run into things. Worse, you're not able to be used by God in the thing that he's doing. So with that in mind, what we're going to be doing this week is, what happens when... There is this slope that goes down and goes off to the right, but there's other Christians. Everything I'm going to say here today almost has to do with Christians, people that love God, that believe him, and so on. But what happens when you get two Christians who believe, one looks at what's down the slope, and one sees it going off to the right, and another sees it going off to the left? And for all the world, they believe that to be true. Now, just, just bracket that for a second, because I want to make sure of something. The thing that I'm trying to say is it's only one or the other. It's not both. There is a scenario where both things can be in play, which we're going to look at in two seconds. Can we come up a little bit more with the lights? Just feels a little dark. I, I just House. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's better. So, so do you get the drift? What happens when there's two different directions and people with all their heart, Christians, really believe God's doing this? No, God's doing this. And there's a real division amongst them. When that's happening, we're getting into a problem area, right? When, it, when there really is only one of them right, what God has said to us was, what Jesus has prayed for us is, I pray that we Christians will all be one, just as you and I, Jesus and the Father, are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. May they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. There's a point to it. But then he says, I've given them the glory you gave me. What's the glory that he gave us? What is it? The Holy Spirit. God gave us the Holy Spirit to do what? To lead us, to guide us, to show us which way the slope is going. So the problem is, he's given us the Holy Spirit so that they may be one, but we're not in a place of oneness. Here's what I'm saying. Two years ago, when division started to happen, before it started to happen, actually, in January, and division didn't start until about April when it looked like Trump might win the primary, and then it got worse and worse and worse until the election and so on. And what I said back then was, I use this illustration all the time, and I said that I feel like God is driving a truck through culture so as to change it, but he's also driving a truck through the church. Because the church has become aligned in a way that is superficial and that is not actually him in fullness. And he needs to shake us up 
just like he's doing the world, so that we will find him in more fullness. And I've been making the argument for two years that there is a difference that's happening in the church, which what we're supposed to be responding to it is like this. We bend our knee and we humble ourselves, and we start to try and understand why somebody who loves Jesus who is moved by the Holy Spirit can see something and feel something and believe something that is so different than what we feel. Because I believe very strongly that what the Lord is trying to do is he's trying to say, you only have part of the truth and you only have part of the truth and together you evidence more of the truth. And I think that this is what God is trying to do. I've been arguing it for two years. Having said that, I want to tell you this is a sermon from, ripped from the headlines. This is a sermon about what's going on. This is a church that goes after the Lord in, as we can see him working in the world. And what I believe right now is there's something that's happening that is very important for us to recognize. Last week, I said that you can have, a, a, the, the, I forget what the metaphor was, but, the, but the, oh, when, when God is withdrawing his hand of protection, that the first response of people will be to go after the deception, will be go to after the pleasure. It's only in the second instance that people start to realize the things they went after weren't all the glitters, wasn't gold, it really wasn't God, and then they start to repent. In the same way, in this division that's happening in the church, there's another layer that started to happen. And that is that genuinely, some people are in fact going away that isn't the Lord. And some people are. Now, right now, let me tell you something. Before you think, yeah, that's right, those people aren't. <laughs> this sermon is about you. This sermon is about how we all are so certain and in fact not right. How this is part of what it is to be human. And we're going to go into that. But having said that, there is nonetheless a truth. There is, the slope either goes right or left. It doesn't go both ways. The slope can go both ways, but you get the drift. The slope either goes right or it goes, what we're saying is it only goes one direction. And how can people get to where they think it's going another direction? That's what we're dealing with today. Now, here's what he says. Here's what God says about it through Paul. There must be divisions among you so that you, can, so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. I need to make something clear. I rarely talk about this. I did in the very beginning. In 2016, when I was on my walk, where I came back to you in January of 2016, and I said, the Lord has told me that he's withdrawing his hand of protection to a degree. I told you what that was in reference to. Does anybody remember? It was a mega church in the Seattle region that had made a choice to go full inclusion. Meaning LGBTQ was not actually, the word didn't say that it was bad, or that we just weren't gonna pay attention to that word. There were sort of both of those flavors going on at that time. But the idea was, is that LGBTQ, and they started having pastors that were gay, and they started doing gay weddings, and all this kind of stuff. And what I said was, is I felt it was in reference to what that was happening, and when God told me this, it was, that was, most people don't know this, that was the first megachurch in America to make that decision. Since that time, many have. Many megachurches have done this. Not, not a majority by any means at all, but several have. But interestingly, in light of this scripture, 
And you can argue this some other way. And if you don't like this, by all means, talk to me. I make my, my cell phone and my email available to all so that if you don't agree with what I'm saying, we can talk. I have reasons for saying what I do. You may not agree with them. That's okay. We can talk, right? But the thing that I want to say is, and I think it's important, according to this scripture, that megachurch no longer exists. It is still in a form, but it is a hundredth of the size that it was. And for all intents and purposes, even they will tell you they're not really Christian. So it has gone a totally different direction. Okay? That's just what they did. Now, this is what I'm telling you. Now, remember what I said. In the beginning of a thing, people do a certain thing. In the beginning of this division, people are trying to figure things out. And here's what's natural. It's normal. Some will think that God is doing something and will become convinced of it. And they will go a direction that isn't actually him. Now, eventually, God's showing who's approved by the fruit. That doesn't mean the church big. By the way, I'm not a huge fan of megachurches. Okay, I believe in churches where you're small enough to know who each other is and you're small enough to be able to interact with each other and talk and work through things as a family. I believe in synagogues. I believe in families. Okay? But the bottom line is, is what I'm going after is, there comes a time when a family is bearing fruit or something else. And I just want to say, it's not to say that everything they're doing is bad and horrible, so I'm not trying to go after this. What I'm trying to make the point is, is this versus happening in our culture today. There are divisions. There are people who are doing things that are going after the Lord, even though there's division, even though there needs to be humility, even though there needs to be growth. And there's other things that are going other directions. Okay? Do, am I, do you want to just take out the eggs now and throw them at me at Rotten Tomatoes? <laughs> Feel free. Okay? I can take it. Okay? Look, here's what happens in this, in this debate. Here's what happens. In every debate that's ever happened, there always comes a certain thing that helps to demarcate. It boils down to a certain moment that helps demarcate this or that. It's not to oversimplify. It's that it starts to hinge on a certain truth. And it's, this is just the one that's happening right now. In other times, in other divisions, in other things, there's been other scriptures and other moments. But in this one right now, the thing that it's, that's at play is this verse. All scripture is inspired, God-breathed by God, and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Now here's what I want you to understand. What that verse is saying is, a book written over a period of 1,500 years by 40, over 40 different authors in 66 different books has one voice. There are, different, there are different styles because of different human beings through whom he was saying, and those styles are very discernible, and we can see them, but the point about Scripture is, is it is coherent. We know what belongs in the Bible and we know what doesn't because literally if you read something, there's lots of Gospels out there that aren't the Gospels that we use. There's lots of other letters. And when you read them, you do not hear the voice that is in this, the only book in the world like this, by the way, nothing else even close. Over 1,500 years, this book being written in a way that is coherent, start to finish. It is what God is saying in this verse and other places. He's saying, 
I made sure that they said what I wanted them to say. Does it still have their flavor? Does it still have their nuance? Yes. But I made sure that I wrote down something that was a plumb line in the earth because human beings have a tendency to spiral away from truth for good reasons. We have reasonable reasons why we do it. So he left a plumb line in the earth to say, do you line up? If you do line up, then the chances are you're pretty much with me. You can still have some error. You can still have some things you need to work on, but you're lining up with me. If you're not lining up with the word, then you're lining up with something, but it isn't God because this word is God. It's alive and it's real. It's key, and it's meant to teach us, to make us realize what is wrong, to correct us, to teach us what is right. If you do not believe that the word is God breathed, then what you do is you say, well, I agree with that part of scripture. Thomas Jefferson did this. I believe in that part of scripture, but not that part. And I believe in this part, but not that part. And I believe, you see what I mean? And you start taking from one and so on. And then you basically make scripture say what you want it to say. And when you do that, it no longer has the ability to correct you, does it? Because anything that you think it's saying that's wrong, you just say it's wrong. See? You don't say I'm wrong. You don't let it correct you anymore. It can't teach you anything because you're telling it what's right and what's wrong about it according to your way of thinking. You see it? So it loses its power, its ability to shape us, to help us be conformed into the image of Christ, who is, by the way, the Word. Jesus Christ is the word in flesh. Scripture is the word, is Jesus Christ in ink or papyrus or whatever it was. You get the point? So do we see this? This is what's happening. This is so important for us to recognize. Now, I need to say something because there's lots of people who will listen to this. Maybe they're here, maybe they aren't, but there's lots of people that will listen to this and they'll think, Kurt is talking about me because this is a conversation I'm having probably with 25 people at a minimum, 100 tangentially. This is, I'm not talking about any one person. I'm talking about having talked to a whole lot of people over a whole lot of time, and I've come to realize what's happening. And I'm proposing it to you. And if I'm wrong, tell me. If I'm right, let's learn. See it? So I'm not talking to any one person. I'm trying to single anybody out. If you think this is about you, I don't know that you're, I don't know. But anyway, you get the point? Okay. So the thing that we're saying real quickly is there's two major threads and three paths. The two major threads now is one that believes the word is not from God and one that believes the word is from God. Inside of the ones that believe it is from God, still love Jesus and so on, there is still a debate going on. One, one side is emphasizing mercy. Another side is emphasizing right standing. Now that's, a, that's a too easy of a classification, but if you really think about it, that's kind of how it's boiling out. One side thinks of it in a certain way that has to do with mercy, compassion, love. The other side is thinking about it in another way that has to do with standing right with God and being right with him and doing the right things and that sort of thing. So there's, and it's not to say that the other side doesn't love and so on, but you get the point. We're, we're basically breaking in this. But, but notice, everybody here, the thing that I've been talking about for two years is still in play. That's not what we're talking about today. We're not talking about the need for all of us to humble ourselves, even though what we're going to learn today is how to humble yourself. 
Okay? Now, with that in mind, every person from every side is completely convinced that they are completely correct, right, true, accurate, and right with God. This is what we have to recognize. The people who are thinking the way that they're thinking are not saying, oh, I know that I'm wrong. <laughs> they know that they're right. They're convinced that they're right. It doesn't mean they're right, but they're convinced of it. So how can we help, help ensure that we ourselves are actually right? That's what we're looking at today. Not judging somebody else, judging ourselves. We're going to come to a deeper understanding of who we really are and what God's trying to do about it. So I have the coolest person praying today, or we have the coolest person, Adam Smith, who is just, a, they're, I wouldn't say new couple to the church anymore or anything like that, but this is a couple that just loves God and is fantastic. So can you just make a point of getting to know them? These are really great people. So Adam, would you pray for the sermon left up another church? Jesus, I thank you that you are here. Uh, Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are moving in each one of our, our hearts. And I thank you that in this world and in this church, you are moving. There, there's a, a place where you're going, and, and I thank you that you invite us to be a part of that. So I pray that you would quicken each one of our hearts this morning and help us to, to hear where you are moving and to move right along with you. I also lift up New Life Foursquare Church in Tacoma, Pastor Billy Sarno, and pray that you would Amen. continue there ministry of, of healing and reconciling people to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Billy is a great person. Great prayer. Love that. All right. Now, here's what we're going to do for the next 20 minutes. We're going to look at how biased we are. We're going to look at research and things that show us how we can think that we're right when, in fact, somebody else can think something different and they also think that they're right. And we need to see how the brain works in the real world, okay? How many people remember this dress? Okay, how many people see blue and black? Raise your hands. How many people see gold and white? Raise your hands. Now, it's because of the lighting that, you, that so many more people do. Usually when you go into the culture, when you go into the broader thing, it's almost 50-50, okay? It just has to do with lighting and so on. But here's the deal. For several reasons, I actually did some research on this. And here's what I discovered about it. First of all, you all think you got some explanation. You heard some explanation of it. You think that that's it. There's actually, this turns out to be a very, very fascinating thing. And researchers are studying it more and more because this turns out to be one of the most stable images. That's how they refer to it. It's a stable image that demonstrates the way a particular brain processes color versus how another person's brain processes color. That's what all of the research is boiling down to. You've, you've heard it said, oh, well, it was because there were certain shades and so on. It's none of that. that we've, we've researched all of that out of it. What it turns out it is, is if your brain processes color in a certain way, you will see gold and white. If your brain processes color in another way, you will see blue and black. Now, we're not talking about the dress right now. We're just talking about the image. And here's the point. It's not that one is right and one is wrong. It isn't. It's the way that you process. 
That's what makes you see what you see. And somebody goes, this is, of all the ones that have come up, you've seen several other memes like this, and you can kind of hear or you kind of see, you're kind of, with this one, it's incredibly stable, more stable than anything they found, so that's why they're using it. They're saying this really is a window into the, how the brain works. Okay? Now, I see gold and white. Weirdo, yeah, yeah. So, so, but here's what I want you to know. There is, as somebody said to me on a Facebook post, and I thought it was a very interesting comment, they said, in the end, and part of the metaphor that we're holding on to today is, there is, in fact, even though what we're, right now we've been talking about the image, but there is an actual dress. Does anybody know what color the actual dress is? Golden white. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's black and blue. The actual dress. That doesn't mean anything about the image. The image is a different thing than the... But you see, here's the thing that's being said in the metaphor. There's a truth that is behind it. In other words, the slope does go right or left. Underneath your perception is a truth. Now, we need to hold on to that because that's what we're going after. We're trying to figure out, despite what we see in the image, what's true. And what we're looking at is our bias. So now watch. Okay, you 12 people, come on up. I already identified you, so if you got identified, you need to come up. Okay? I need more light here on the stage, please. Okay? Now, I need six of you to go over here. Over here. And I need six of you to go right here. I'm going to be a little off-center, okay? Is that six? One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, come on in. By the way, uh, welcome to the Light to the World Church. Thank you, guys. All right? Now, I need, you to, I need you to clump up. I need you to come this side of that speaker. So come this way. And I need you guys to clump up over here, okay? You're a group, okay? Now, you guys are a group. Come this side of the speaker. Come on. The microphone. Okay. Now, here's what I want you to understand, okay? There's six people here, but there's really seven. This is a person. You're going to find out why I use a music stand instead of a person in a second. So, so they have seven, and sorry, Kevin, you're going to have to adjust, but these guys have seven people. Now, these guys are, so they're on the right, so they're conservatives. They're on the left, and so they're liberals, Okay. Now, here's what I want you to understand. I want you to see a bias. Watch this. A lot of research about this. Okay? So here's what happens. This group is not monolithic. Neither is this group. Right? Inside of the seven people, one of me, which is being a stand, inside of the seven people of this group, there is one person who spouts the ideology but is in fact mentally unstable. They're nuts. Okay? There's somebody who's, they, 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 they use the words and they use the stuff, but anybody inside of this group hears what they're saying. Inside, now, listen, listen to what I said. Anybody inside of this group hears what they're saying and they immediately know this is not of us. This is not like us. This is not accurate. This person is mentally deranged. Okay? They, they may say certain things, but that doesn't mean that's what they are. You see what I'm saying? Now, so we got, a, we got this person over here too. Now, inside of this group, there's also going to be another demarcation, okay? This demarcation is, and I'm sorry, but you get this. This is the zealot. Yeah. The extremist. Yeah. 
Okay? That's good, that's good. Now the extremist is, they do in fact hold to much of the ideas that are in this group. And if not, almost all, right? They do identify. They are properly identified in the grander stereotype of what this, no, not, well, they're properly identified in this group. But the people in this group, when they see the, the extremist, they say, I understand why they're doing what they're doing, but I don't believe in what they're doing. I don't believe in what they're doing. I don't believe in attacking on the liberal side. I don't believe in them attacking people at their homes. I don't believe that they're all pipe bombers. Okay? You, you get the drift? That would be actually the crazy person. So, so on this side, it's, it would be, again, I'm just using some labels, but this would be, I need to just be careful how I do this. Let me, let me do that a little differently. Here's the extremist. He's definitely a part of this, but he does things that we don't agree with. Um, there may be a racial aspect. Okay? There may be a mob aspect, and we need one of you, so you get to be it. Actually, actually I'm going to put you here. So you've got to separate yourself a little bit here. Okay, so that you guys, your group, you got to leave him just a little bit, okay? <laughs> All right? All right. Now, now, there's another person, too, that's on the other side of this group, isn't there? And this person wouldn't be an extremist. And it's not that they're just in the center. They just have a different aspect to them about it, to where they're clearly still part of the group, but there's a way, again, of them thinking about it, which is kind of the opposite of the extremist. And it's still, yes, it's part of our group, but it's not really our group. See, the group, to the degree that they can be identified in a generalization, the group is really this. And so we got Miles here. You see it now? Now do you see the two groups? Now here's where it becomes important. As part of this group, if I am, when the, when the nut job does something, I immediately know it's not us. When the extremist does something, I'm closer connected, but it's still not us. When this person does something, it's still not us. Do you see it? I make subtlety. I make differentiation. I do all kinds of things because there is, in fact, for people that have enough commonality, enough similarity, and so on, bell-curving things, there's enough people that are in this group that they can instantly tell who is and who isn't and to what degree they are and aren't. Do you see it? And that's the same way over here, right? You instantly know it. Now, here's where the problem is. Here's where the research is. It is imp I'm going to go over here since I've been over there. It's impossible. This is what the research tells us. Even though you know that on your side... There are shades of, and there are differentiations and nuances and subtleties. Even though you know that that's true of your tribe, and you might be one of these people who can project that over into that tribe and know that there's shades and subtleties of difference, because you know the absolute differentiation in your own, what you cannot do, is properly separate the differentiation in the other group. You don't know them. 
You don't know the inside out of what this thing is. And so even though you know that there's shades of things, when, and again, this is a generalization. Let's just take a generalization. When the, sorry, but when the racist, <laughs> and, and do you understand something? I know, I should have used another thing. But do you understand where I'm going here? When the racist does what he does, these people here, we all understand systematic racism, so do these people. They understand systemic racism. They understand that there are still racial problems in the world. They understand that as much as they don't think they're racist, there is racial aspects to us, just like they understand that. Everybody pretty much that's in the, knows this. But the problem is that when this group does that, they make a differentiation just like this group does, but when they look at the other group, they cannot separate that because they don't make the differentiation internally between me and someone else. And so the racist colors the whole group. Do you see it? The mob extremist colors the whole group. Do you see it? There's a socialist, sorry. <laughs> but that colors the whole group. There's a, you, get what I'm, you get what I'm doing here, right? Yeah. You see this? Now, all the research in politics is, and this is what they use, because what they do is they say, you need to paint the other side in a way that people will hate them. Mm -hmm. Because it's not about getting people to believe that you're right. It's about people to, getting people to believe that they're wrong. That's what drives you out to vote. That's what's called going after your base. If you can make your base feel, oh my God, you people are such horrible racists, I have to vote against you. Oh my God, you guys are such horrible mob or socialists or whatever, I have to vote against you. You see what I mean? That motivates a person to actually go out and vote when it's raining. You see it? Okay, thank you guys very much. Okay, thank you. So what we're doing is we're looking at bias. Okay, sorry. I so owe you. I so owe you. I know, and his kids are black in the whole nine yards, so I think I picked the right one. Okay? All right. Now, now this is just a small area of this because there's much more to it. But this is a helpful area to understand. It's called confirmation bias. It's only one aspect in what we're talking about here, but it's an important one. Now watch. A confirmation bias is a tendency of people to favor information that confirms their beliefs or hypothesis. Now the brain literally searches for, watch what it does. This is how the brain works. The left side of the brain is just always gathering information. How many people are here? What color are their clothes? What color are the chairs? How bright are the lights? It's gathering information. Then the right brain comes over that information and starts to try to make connections between it. What does this mean? What's happening here? These are people gathered for what? See what I mean? So the right brain is always supplying meaning out of whatever facts it has. The issue that we're talking about is that the right brain is not necessarily true in its interpretation of its connections. And so confirmation bias is this well-known thing that is the brain searches for, interprets, favors, and recalls information in a way that confirms one's beliefs or hypothesis while giving disproportionately less consideration to alternative possibilities. 
You see what's being said? The right brain in its search for meaning has a bias, and so it sees connections where it wants to, even if they're not there. And the connections that are there that it does see that would be at odds with what its bias is, the brain will automatically discount those. You can take a conservative and have them watch MSNBC. It doesn't make them a liberal. It makes them a stronger conservative. You can take a liberal and have them watch Fox. It doesn't make them a conservative. It makes them a stronger liberal. There have been lots of studies on this. The point is, your brain, your meaning maker, is making meaning the way it wants, regardless of what's true. See? So pragmatically, what we do is we group together and we prefer information that confirms our bias while shunning, separating. This is happening in churches all over the country, right? If it's a conservative body, liberals are leaving. If it's a liberal body, conservatives are leaving, okay? So what's happening is we prefer information that can, in groups and information that prefer while shunning and dismissing that which does not. Because we have confirmation bias going on. It's just too uncomfortable for me to be with these people who think, the way that I, who think a different way than I do. I can't understand why they don't see it. Now watch this. This is also just really important. The effect is stronger for emotionally charged issues and for deeply entrenched beliefs. If, there's, if the issue is, if you're passionate about, this is not, God made us passionate beings. Don't ever think that when I'm talking about passion and the problems of passion, and I'm saying don't be passionate, God is very passionate. He wants us to be passionate about him. Lukewarm is what he spits out of his mouth. So there's nothing wrong with passion. It's just that we have to realize its downside. And its downside is, is that it'll influence us. Stronger and stronger. The more passionate a person is, the more impossible it is for them to see the other side. Do you see it? And the problem is, it's a systemic error. It is not an error that can be, you can just get rid of. It is at such a level, it's so deeply ingrained in the wiring and in the perspective that it's virtually impossible to get around. What you have to do is become aware so that you begin to realize, as right as I think I am, there is another right out there that is also as right. And I need to be understanding what that is. Now, there's also wrongs out there that are purporting to be rights that are actually wrong. So you've got to figure out what's what, right? Now, let me just take you a little bit further on this. Um, I think I'm, for time's sake, and just because, I think I'm going to shorten this little section here. But I just want to ask a question. How many people saw the exchange between Donald Trump and Jim Acosta at the White House? How many people saw that? Okay, so it's not even half, and that's a problem. Uh, I don't want to show the video. Um, but here's, here's what I want to say. Uh, help me, Jesus. Not unless you're going to be, want to be here till four. Uh, okay. Okay, look. Uh, you're, I'm going to show the video real quick. It's, I'm just going to have to do it. But here's the deal. If, if, if you take this political, if you let yourself get triggered, and there's a lot of triggers in here, if you let yourself get triggered, you will not get the point I'm making. And, it, and I shouldn't have done it. And there'll be lots of people in here that are going to get triggered. So here's what I need to do. I need to prep you so that you have a chance of not triggering on this. 
Here's what we're going after. A person that I love, whose name I won't mention, but sitting right in front of me, posted, <laughs> posted that video and said, hey, talk to me if you're from the right or from the left. Talk to me about what you see in here. And, and, and about half the people said Trump is being an a-hole, and half the people said the reporter was being an a-hole. Okay? Was I clear enough on that? Yeah. Okay. And so what I said is I said, if you don't like or even hate Trump, then you see what he did as aggressive, mean, bullying, and yet more proof that he's unfit to be president. If, however, you like Trump, or, as is very possible, you do not like Trump, but you like his policies, particularly as contrasted to other policies, or at least like his policies, then you will see the reporter's behavior, including the questions and question and questions, as aggressive, mean, bullying, and yet more proof that the press is only out to get him. Trump is the blue dress of our day. <laughs> now, a person pushed back on me and said something, and my response back, in, the, in my response back, I said this. I said, there are two valid ways to see this moment, valid ways. This, this is how I saw the moment when I saw it. I saw Trump was indeed degrading and demeaning, and I saw the reporter was being degrading and demeaning. Yes. I saw both of them were doing this. Now I'm going to show you the clip. God help me. Please don't. Please don't leave because of this. Okay. I mean it. I'm not kidding you. This is really, I know it's funny and I'm doing it in a funny way, but this is super serious and you've got friends and you know how serious this is. But I just, having prepped you like this, I just want you to see if, if you think that Acosta was being a jerk or if you think Trump was being a jerk, I want you to look at the other side and just say to yourself, were they not being a jerk also? Okay, so take a listen. This is the. Uh, thank you, Mr. President. I wanted to challenge you on, on one of the, the statements challenge. that you made in the tail end of the campaign. And now look what uh, he does. In, in the midterms. That here, this, here we go. That, See, well, challenge, it, here it, we go, right there. That this caravan was an invasion. As you know, yeah, Mr. I, President. I consider it to be an invasion. As you know, Mr. President, the caravan was not an invasion. It's a, it's a, a group of migrants moving up from Central America towards the border with the U.S. Thank you for telling and me that. And why, why, why did you characterize it as such? Uh, because and, I consider it an invasion. You and I have a difference of opinion. But do you think that you demonized immigrants not in this election no, to try I to want keep... Them, I want them to come into the country, but they have to come in legally. You know, they have to come in, Jim, through a process. I want it to be a process. And I want people to come in, and we need the people. You your know, campaign... Wait, your campaign. Wait, wait. You know why we need the people, don't you? Because we have hundreds of companies moving in. We need the people. But your campaign had an ad showing migrants climbing over walls and well, so on. Well, that's true. It, it, but they it, weren't actors. They're not going to be doing they that. They weren't actors. Well, no, it's true. Do you think they were actors? They weren't actors. They didn't come from Hollywood. Right. These, were, these were people. This was an actual, you know, it happened a few days ago. And, uh, They're hundreds of miles away, though. They're hundreds and hundreds of miles away. That, that's I not an invasion. Should, honestly, uh, I think you should let me run the country. You run CNN. All right. And if you did it well, your ratings well, let me would be ask, much better. If I, if I may okay, ask one enough. other question. Mr. President, if I may, if I may ask Peter, one other ahead. question, are you worried? That's enough. That's Mr. enough. Mr. President, I, well, that's I was going to ask one of the, the other folks. That's that, enough. Pardon me, ma'am. Excuse me. That's enough. Mr. President, I had one other Peter, question. If I may ask on the Russia investigation, are you concerned that that you may have I'm not concerned about anything with you the may Russian investigation because it's a hoax. Are you, That's enough. Put down the mic. Mr. President, are you worried about indictments coming down in this investigation? Mr. President. I'll tell you what, CNN should be ashamed of itself having you working for them. You are a rude, terrible person. You shouldn't be working for CNN. Go ahead. 
I, I think that's unfair. You're a very rude person. The way you treat Sarah Huckabee is horrible. And the way you treat other people are horrible. You shouldn't treat people that way. Go ahead. To be clear, this is a symptom. People will see that and think that this is the cause. This is not the cause. This is a symptom. This is what we are all doing. This is what people are doing with each other all the time now. Okay? And this is just, we're electing people and we're having interchanges that are reflecting who we've become, who we have become. As God has withdrawn restraint and people are going after things, this is what we all look like increasingly. Now you may say, I'm not like that, and praise God that you're not. But you do see that the culture has moved a long ways. There was a way for Trump to have handled that, which Ronald Reagan used to do so deftly. He would bring humor or do something else that would just, was so gracious, but also made his point. But in that day and age, there was also a difference in the reporters. Sam Donaldson was the only one who was in your face all the time. Other people had a different kind of respect. So the issue is, and all I'm trying to say, I'm not for Trump, I'm not for the reporter. What I'm saying is, is we bring our bias to how to understand that event. And people will say Trump was the idiot, or people will say the reporter was the idiot, based on them. Does everybody know what this is? is there, are there young people that don't know what this is? It's a Rorschach test. This is an ink blot that's put in a piece of paper, and then you fold the paper up and you open it up because the brain likes symmetry. Whenever the brain sees symmetry, it tries to make sense of it. Because symmetry is not something that is totally natural, even though it is in nature very much, but you get the drift. It tries to make sense of symmetry. So what happens is you've got a doctor who would show this to a patient. And what they were doing was is they would say, what do you see? And here's what they were listening for. How do they describe it? What words do they use? How much emotion do they have in it? If you are a happy person, then you would tend to say something like, I see a butterfly. I love butterflies. And the psychiatrist would know that person's bias is towards happiness and pleasantness. Another person would say, that makes me sad. Something is breaking or whatever. That makes me sad. See? Another person would say, from a fearful place, I see tension. See? Now, is there tension? It's just an ink blot. <laughs> Your right brain is coming in and making something of it. Another person would think it was fearful and they would see things in it to be fearful about. You see, as I'm saying these things, you can look at it and your brain is already saying, yeah, what's fearful about that? What's happy about that? What's sad about that? Now, let me tell you the one that they really were looking for. If you're highly sexualized, then you see sex in there. So don't look for that. Okay. <laughs> now... What we're talking about is what's called eisegesis. And what eisegesis is, this is theologically, it's used in other realms too. But eisegesis is the process of interpreting a text or a portion of a text in such a way that the process introduces one's own presuppositions, agendas, or biases into the text. We call this reading into the text. I'm reading into the, I've got a certain bias, I know I've got a bias, and I'm reading the text with this bias to see what it says with this filter on. See? 
Now, what we say in theology is, you, we, theologians, theologians are not stupid. They understand bias. They understand that we're almost, we are, we are not almost, we are genuinely incapable of true exegesis. We're incapable of it. So what we do is we come up with a way of doing it that helps us get as close as we can to a neutral and unbiased reading by doing this. We interpret Bible passages utilizing critical analysis. It's the thorough investigation of a biblical text within various contexts. Historical, literary, other things. And what you're doing is you're trying to see this text in other ways. You see it? And the more ways you see it, the more ways you can read it, the more likely you are to understand it properly, the way it was meant. So to discover the original meaning in a way that tries to get rid of one's presuppositions, agendas, or biases. Got it? Now, we're going to do this as a congregation right now. I'm going to show you how this works when you're reading the Bible, because we're talking about how people are letting the Bible, they're, they're, they're understanding the Bible differently than what's intended. Now watch this. This is a soap, uh, I want to say Wednesday, if not this last week, but the week before, Tuesday, Wednesday, Leviticus 19. You must not steal, you must not act deceptively, or lie to one another. You must not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of your God. Why must you not do that? Because you're my people and you're supposed to be evidencing me. You're supposed to be witnessing who I am. I'm Yahweh. I don't do that. I don't steal. I don't do those things. So don't you do it. Because when you do it, then you're saying that I do this, and that's how I am. Be like me, is what he's saying. You must not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages do a hired man must remain with you until morning. You must, or must not remain. You must not curse the, deaf, curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. You are to fear your God. I'm Yahweh. Be like me. Be afraid to be not like me. You must not act unjustly when deciding a case. Do not be partial to the poor or give preference to the rich. Judge your neighbor fairly. You must not go about spreading slander amongst your people. You must not jeopardize your neighbor's life. I am Yahweh. Right? Now watch. I'm reading this, and I get to this. If a man has sex with a slave girl whose freedom has never been purchased, but who's committed to become another man's wife, he must pay full compensation to her master. But since she is not a free woman, neither the man nor the woman will be put to death. The man, however, must bring a ram as a guilt offering and present it to the Lord at the entrance of the tabernacle. Now, if you're just reading that, you just read it and you don't care. But if you're trying to learn from it, if you're trying to understand what God is saying here, I don't want any charitable explanations right now. I want, if you are reading this uncharitably, what do you see in it? Because I'm telling you, this is what I saw in it. What do you see? Just yell it out. Unfair. How? Why is the difference uh, for a slave girl to one that would not be a slave? Perfect. There's a much worse one in there, too. What is it? Adultery is okay with a slave. Yes. Now, there's another one still. Yes? Keep going. What about rape? Did he rape her? Is that what happened? Oh my God. And then you're not going to put him to death? Not her, of course, but him. Okay, now I need to do something. I need to do what I did. I read that and I went, Speed bump. 
right in the face. What are you saying? This is not like you. Eisegesis. I want you to eisegetically now work this text with two thoughts in mind. God is good, always good, always good. And he's love. Think about it for a second. How can you read that text eisegetically and start seeing good and love in it? What's that? A little louder. They did not get put to death. Okay. That's sort of like lining in a silver lining in a very dark cloud. But it's true. Anything else? Go ahead. Loud. It's good. Do you get any more out of it? The guilt offering is after the fact. Okay. Who's the main character in this story? The girl. It's not the man, it's the girl. How is God being good to this girl? Well, here's the thing about Scripture. We're going to talk about it in a second, but we have what we call versitis. Versitis is, you know versitis is? It's a play on words. Versitis is that we read a particular Scripture, and when we read it by itself, we can almost make it mean anything. But when you understand it in its story, tell me, what's John 3.16 say? Just say it out loud. Got it. Okay, everybody can say the verse. All right, now, what story does it come in? What story does it come in? What? Then that's because you went to seminary. How many people, no, I'm serious. I'm serious right now, be honest. How many people knew that that story comes from Nicodemus coming to the Lord? How many people knew that? Raise your hands. Knew that instantly. Do you see it? Versitis. We know the verse, but not the story. You got to know the story in order to understand properly the verse. The verse has to be consistent with the story. So when I read this, I went to the story, not just in Leviticus, but in the whole Bible, in who I know God to be from Scripture. And I know him to be, by his own admission, love. And I know him to be, by his own admission, merciful. Good. Okay? This is what he says he is. So now I read this and I say, this seems terribly unfair to the girl until I start thinking about it. Watch. Using the whole of the story, scripture, I see something. Rape is not okay. If a man encounters an engaged woman in an open country and he seizes and rapes her, the man who raped her must die. Is God saying something different in Leviticus than what he's saying over here? No. So whatever interpretation we want to give to what's happening in that verse, here's what we got to understand. It wasn't about rape. Because if it was rape, he dies. So it's not about rape. Well, slavery. A lot of us brought up slavery. Well, how does God feel about slavery? See, our history with slavery makes us look at it in only negative terms. People compelled from another country in ships to come and build wealth for white people. That's how we think about it. You do realize that if you can get outside of your context and you can understand that in that day and age, if you were a young, single girl, 
particularly if you were made men want to sleep with you, the world was a phenomenally dangerous place. You didn't have an apartment. You didn't have a job where there was an HR department that protected you and you got a salary that went to a bank and paid for your rent in your safe apartment. You were left to the elements. And usually what would happen is you would come under somebody who would protect you. And that was a kind of slavery. But let's be clear. First of all, is slavery God's will? If a fellow Hebrew sells himself to herself to your servant and, uh, and serves six years, in the seventh year, you must set that servant free. When you release a male servant, do not send him away empty-handed. Give him a generous farewell gift from your flock, your threshing floor, your wine press. Share with him the bounty of which the Lord has blessed you. Remember that you were once slaves in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. This is why I'm giving you this command. But suppose your servant says, I will not leave you. Well, what slave would not want to leave? Oh, maybe we're talking about something very different than what we're talking about in America. If a slave doesn't want to leave you because he loves you and your family and he's done well with you, in that case, take an owl, push it through the earlobe, earrings, into the door, and after that, he'll be your servant for life. And then he talks about how you need to treat the woman with the same kind of deference and honor. Do you remember something? In Ephesians, here's what God says about slavery. As a slave, treat your master right. As an owner, treat your slave right. Because here's the deal. God doesn't see a master and a slave. He sees two human beings he made in his image. And he cares about them both. And if either one of you mistreat the other, you're culpable before the Lord. So is God into slavery? It was something in a fallen world that had happened, and there was actually some benefit in it. There was also not some benefit. But the point is, is that there was a protective thing in there where a person could come under a wealthy person's care who had an army so as to protect their servants. Do you see it? So now let's go back to the verse. If a man has sex with a slave girl, let's take the least charitable explanation of this. Here's the least charitable one. Because we already ruled out rape, and we've already ruled out that the issue here is about slavery because God is clearly treating her as a human being. So what's he trying to do to protect her? If a man comes, this is the least charitable one, a man comes and he compels this woman to sleep with him. She is a servant. There's a powerful master and there's another powerful man and he comes and she sleeps with him. It's not rape though, but it isn't necessarily her, you know, it's what we would now call me too, right? It's, it's using your power in a way that was offensive, that was an, an offense to the woman. Do you see it? It's me too, right here. And what's taking place is, if that, if that, if, if the, watch this. If the girl sleeps with the guy, can she be sold now to be the wife as she was supposed to be? Where she will be protected, can she? No. The man will never pay for her now. So now she's in deep trouble. Even though she wasn't a willing participant, she's in deep trouble now, isn't she? Do notice something in this passage. It doesn't say that the guy that redeemed her gets to keep her. Do you see that? It doesn't say you have to go with the person that bought you. Because he may just be an ass. And you don't have to go. The idea is, is that one of those two men is going to continue to want and protect her. Continue to keep her safe. And she ends up there. A human being being protected. But now let's take it all the way. 
A slave girl is not getting to choose who she marries, is she? But what if she loves a young man? What the young man should do is go to the master and say, I'm going to pay the price. Sometimes that'll work, sometimes that won't work. God is not saying it's okay to then go sleep with her, because then you'll get her. But, but think about that for a second. Here's what he's saying. The reason why he's saying don't put him to death is, is because they may actually be in love. Or they may, or it may even under the first situation, it may be somebody who's going to care for her, take care of her. Do you see where God's heart is now? It's not about the man, it's about the woman. He's trying to protect the woman. And the rule is not to kill the man, in which case that would leave her orphaned. It would leave her exposed. Do you see it? It might even end up. And now, now look, at, look at how beautiful this is. God is coming into the middle of an incredibly broken situation that he never intended. Slavery and just all of this nonsense and sexual and all the stuff that God never intended. But he comes into the middle of what he didn't intend and he saves. He rescues. That's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ could have easily judged every one of us. But instead he came in and he saved us. Do you see it? Do you see how your reading, your perspective, your bias changes how you read? This is what's happening. Versitis, knowing the verse but not the story. When you know the story, it starts to bring down what that verse can mean. See, I looked at the whole story. I looked at verses. I said, it can't mean what we thought it meant. So what does it mean? And I started seeing a God of love caring for his child. The word is a story told by God through 40 authors over 1,500 years and 66 books. And the key is that every part is completely consistent and coherent with every other part. Now, God, help me here. In Jesus' name. All scriptures inspired God, breathed by God, and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what's right. God uses us to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. When you properly understand scripture, it changes you. It lines you up with it. But even there, people get it wrong. Do you know what a fundamentalist is? It's the same thing as a Pharisee. A person who knows the jot and tittle. That means the two smallest strokes in all the language. The T cross and the dot on the I. They know the jot and tittle, but they don't understand what it means in its wholeness. There are lots of people that know the Bible and don't understand. Watch. How can Christians who have the Holy Spirit inside dismiss the word, misunderstand God, and just generally get him all wrong? But that's about them. And remember, this sermon's about us. So what we're really asking is, how can we ourselves get it right? How can we get it right? You know the Bible. You study the scripture. You do your best. You come to a conclusion. It turns out it's wrong. How do you get it right? How do you get to a place to where when you read scripture, you read it so that it is right? It does go down the way God has the slope going, not some other way. 
Well, here it is. And we've been talking about this for a month now, actually six weeks. For six weeks, God has given the same point in every sermon. We must be empowered, filled, and anointed to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. But in action. Being baptized in the Holy Spirit, being in church, studying your Bible, you can still be wrong. You know the least likely way you're ever going to be wrong? Doesn't mean you can't be wrong, but you know the least likely way you're ever going to be wrong? Take the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and go out and try and help people. Because when you go out and try and help people, you'll figure out what was just kind of in your head and was spiraling off from truth because they don't need your good story. They need healing. They need real help. They don't need you feeling good about them or feeling sorry for them. They need clothes. Do you see it? They need real things. And, and taking the baptism of the Holy Spirit and putting it into action in your life as, in, as anointed by him, the key is you can go out and do all kinds of nice things in your own self. But will it heal anybody? Will it do a miracle for them? Will it give them a word from the Lord that will change their lives? No. You need to be anointed by the Lord to do what the Lord is leading you to do, period. And then you need to go do it. If you got it, if you got a gift from the Lord to give to somebody else and you fail to give it to them, it rots in you and you get spiraled out. You lose the truth. You die. They lost because you didn't bring it to them, but you lose too. You see it? Watch this. Paul versus Peter. Peter was supposed to be the, the disciple, the apostle to the Gentiles. Remember? He's sitting there. He has a vision three times, unclean food. Oh, I've never eaten unclean food. Don't call unclean what I call clean. And then God has also talked to Cornelius, a Gentile. She was never associated with Gentiles. Certainly don't go in their homes. All of a sudden, three Gentiles come to his house, led by the Lord. And he says, there's three guys waiting downstairs with you. Go with them. They're unclean. What does he do? He goes. And then he goes in their house. And then he goes, I guess I'm supposed to preach. So he preaches. They all get saved and they all get baptized in the Holy Spirit right there. Right there. Peter comes back and he goes, I don't understand it because we surely don't understand it, but God is with them Gentiles too. We call them pigs, but God seems to like them. Do you see it? But now watch what happens. Peter was supposed to be that guy. How did he do, how did this happen then? When Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, said Paul, for he did what was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when friends of James came, who's James? The head of the Jerusalem church. Peter wouldn't even eat with the Gentiles anymore. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. How did Peter go from the visions and the experience of being for the Gentiles and now he won't even eat with them? I'll tell you how he did it. Sorry, listen carefully. It's because he only went to church. Do you hear it? That's why he didn't get it right. He was in Jerusalem in a church that was dying, in a church that was becoming a sect inside of Judaism as opposed to the hope of the world. Jews, Gentiles, and everybody else. The church in Jerusalem was dying, and in fact, a couple of years after this, it won't be anymore at all. Where is the church? 
with the person that's going out there and putting it into practice. There's good theology. Where did Paul get his good theology from? Was it when he went to heaven? Or did he already have good theology way before that? Because he did. And he was going to the world. And in fact, at one point in time, all the disciples still hanging out in church. When Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you're circumcised as required by the law, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders. And guess who wins? The people in that church doing their little thing? It's the guy that's been out there trying to bring the truth, the gospel, the real God to all the people that he loves. He's the one that they do. And even then they come up with some stupid rules that Paul ends up not obeying anyway. I really mean this. Okay, you got to read it. It's, it's fascinating. But are you catching what the issue is? Here's what God said. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always. He's saying, teach them how to live right. Teach them how to do right. Correct them. Bring them into a place. Get them transformed by the word, by everything. Get them in a place where they can bring me, the living God, to people in a way that changes their lives. Not just comforts. We're supposed to comfort too, but that is actually engaged in changing their lives miraculously. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Here's what we are doing. 95% of all believers in America have never led anybody to Christ. You want to let your theology get bad? Never try and lead anybody to Christ. Your theology will spin off in a place that isn't true. Now, I'm not trying to point my bony finger at people here inside the building. Here's what I'm just trying to say. Do you understand what we're going after? 90% of all Christians in America will never share their faith with anyone in their whole life. Nine out of ten Christians will never try and bring another person to the Lord. Only 1% of all believers in America will ever do the Great Commission. They'll, ever, they'll multiply and reproduce themselves by disciple-making. Only 1%. One out of 100 people will go and try and make disciples. You see it? Is that why we're getting it wrong in the American church? Is that why things are spinning out of control? I believe this with all my heart. We're just not putting it into practice. Put it into practice. You're going to learn so many things. And again, I just want to say, don't just put compassion into practice. Yes, have compassion. Be, be like Jesus. Move with compassion right down to his own gut. So Jesus was moved with compassion, but here's what he didn't do. I'm just going to give you clothes, and you're just going to be, and I'm, going to just, and I'm just going to work with you here. Here's what Jesus did. Move with compassion. He healed him. He did a miracle. I tell you, you want to get your theology right? Let God move through you to heal somebody. That'll change all your understanding of everything. I really believe something. I believe one of the reasons why the American church has become having a form of godliness but denying its power to change us, I believe is because we're not trying. We're not praying for people who are sick and believing that they're going to be healed. And when they're not healed, we're not going, why weren't they healed? You told me to do this. In fact, what you said was, 
Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I've done, even greater works, because I'm going to be with the Father. You can ask anything in my name, and I'll do it. So the Son will bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Here's what I think has happened in the American church. A lot of people have actually tried to do some of the things that the Lord has said, and it didn't happen, and now they're afraid, and so they've pulled back. And they're not trying now because they don't want to look foolish, because they don't know what's going on, because they're confused and so on. But also what's going on is there's a lot of other things in life too. So it's not of paramount importance to them. So it's not the thing that they're trying to figure out in life. Do you see it? This is not what our walk is about. This is not what our lives are about. Our lives are about a lot of things. And every once in a while we pray for somebody and hope it works. And then we wonder why our theology is spinning out of control. Paul said, my speech and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a powerful demonstration by the Spirit. We need a powerful demonstration by the Spirit, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to do this right now. This comes from Justine, who had a fabulous idea, and then God gave me this sermon, and I stole it from her. Okay? So I want you to reach down in front of you, and you're going to see this. Turn it to the side that has the spirals, not the lines. It has the circles, excuse me. Does anybody know what spheres of influence is? You have a pen there too, by the way. If you don't have a pen, raise your hand and usher will make sure and get one to you. Okay, you got it? See those? You know what a sphere of influence is? It, here's, here's what it is. See, when we talk about outreach in Lake Sam, that's one of our values. It's one of our essentials. When we talk about doing outreach, here's what most people think. Some guy standing on a street corner handing out tracts, or some event where we rented play toys and people came and we were hoping them to get them to come to church. That is not outreach. Here's what outreach is. You personally are being placed in people's in situations and people's lives to reach them. That's what outreach is. God using you to reach the people that He's put you in contact with. So I asked Justine, because normally you'd look at spheres, and what the middle sphere would be is family, the next sphere would be friends, and the next sphere would be neighbors and coworkers. But Justine was exactly right. She said, I don't want that. While Thanksgiving is coming up and everything else, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go after, have people pray about what spheres are they supposed to be opening their eyes to. So here's what I want you to do. Start thinking and praying and let the Holy Spirit bring to you what spheres are you in that he's trying to use you in. Do you see it? Is it a friend? Is it a family member? Is it a coworker? What sphere are you in? And don't think about people so much right now. We're going to do that next. Right now, I just want you to think about what sphere are you in and take that pen and write the sphere. Think about the places that God has placed you and see if he quickens to you one of those places. You are wonderful. Wow. 
See, I thought I knew what my initial one would be. And then I asked the Lord what it would be and he just changed me. And he said, nope, your initial one is this. So what's the second one? Are you about there? Flip it over. Now pray, what are the names? Three names. Not five, not four, not two. Think about the fact that you're just about to be with somebody on Thanksgiving. Somebody the Lord's quickening you to? Now take that name, take those names, take them home. And stick them someplace where you're going to see it until you see them again. Stick it someplace where you're going to see it all the time. And Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name,